0: Hello and welcome again to MedPeds in a podcast. I am April Edwards, the PGY5 MedPeds chief at UNC, and this week I'll be bringing you a couple articles, one from medicine, one from peds, and one from our outpatient clinic. Hope you get something out of it. And if you don't, um, don't complain to me. Thanks, great, bye. Um, So starting with medicine, this week we turned to the Annals of Internal Medicine. There was an article called Gradual versus Abrupt Smoking Cessation, an RCT, non-inferiority trial. So this, the basic idea is, is it better or more efficacious for our patients to quit cold turkey, as they say, or to try to taper down. Which one of those seems to be uh, more effective, more efficacious for the patient population that we serve? So this trial is actually, was done in England, um, but had almost 700 smokers who all uh, previously expressed a desire to quit, which is more than often we uh, are able to get in our outpatient clinic. But they had about 700 patients and they split them into two groups. And said that some of you are going to be in the cold turkey group and some of you are going to try to gradually quit. Um, So basically they set a two week date and in the abrupt group uh, they gave them nicotine patches and said keep on doing your thing, smoke, whatever um, for the next two weeks and then you're going to just stop. Then for the gradual group they had a couple different plans but basically they were like yes we will give you all the same resources, nicotine patches and short acting nicotine products. Um, and you just need to cut down with the aim of, uh, cutting in half in the first week after your quit date and then 75% by your quit day. Uh, so what did they find out? Uh, smoking abstinence was higher with the abrupt cessation, the cold turkey group, than with the, um, gradual cessation group. And they actually measured that at both a month out, so four weeks out, um, when I think the, the visitism rate is pretty high, and then again at six months. And so, for both of those dates, it turns out that the abrupt group was better. So, what does this tell us, if anything? So, it was actually a pretty well done trial. Um, it was, I mean, it was done in England, um, but the patient population um, was, they were all, I mean, uh, the, some of the limitations were that they were all already 100% ready to quit. They enrolled in this because they wanted to stop smoking, which is we often encounter patients who are in the pre-contemplative state. Then also it was um, a majority uh, Caucasian population. About 94% of the population was Caucasian. So it's not quite as generalizable to our patients. But one thing that I liked is that they did not exclude participants for uh, myriad Uh, medical conditions which is really uh, important for our population because we see so many people who have various medical comorbidities. So I think this is some uh, interesting promising data coming out of England saying that yeah if you're if you have a patient who's already telling you that they want to quit then maybe you should just try to go for just the cold cold turkey approach as opposed to the the wean and taper. So next shifting our gears and moving to pediatrics exciting news so this week we have an article out of um, the recent edition of pediatrics by our very own charles wood so a study that came out of unc Um, and so the article article was entitled bottle size and weight gain in formula fed infants so there has as we know there's been an association with sort of portion control and portion size, uh, and the association with weight gain in older adults and and also older children. Uh, But this is gearing the focus specifically on infants, and in this study, particularly infants between the two-month visit and the six-month visit. And the question that they asked is basically, so for people who are already telling us that they are formula feeding their babies, does bottle size have any impact on how much weight that baby will gain between the two-month visit and the six-month visit. So they it was an RCT uh, that spread across four pediatric resident clinics, and they had about 400 uh, babies that they checked at the two-month visit, and they basically said, OK, m- parents, uh, what size bottle do you use, four, six, eight, or greater? Um, what bottle is most likely what you would use to feed your baby? And then based on the data that they got, they tracked those kids and then measured them at the two-month visit and then again at the six-month visit and looked at their weight and their weight for age. Uh, they did a Z-score for the weight for age and then also a weight for length, a, a Z-score again, and said, how do those things change and is there any difference besi- between the um the population who uses a bottle that is 6 ounces or less or 6 ounces or greater. And basically, what they found is that the infants who had big bottles, which they defined as being um, equal to or larger than 6 ounces, um, had more significant weight gain. And that was across the board. So uh, absolute weight gain, uh, their weight, weight change uh, for age, and their weight change for length, all of those indices were Um, increased. Uh, And so this is, I mean, it seems uh, often I feel that some of the pediatric data we have, when you read it, it seems like, oh yeah, I could have guessed that. But this is important data because if you think about a kid who's less than six six months old, their primary source of nutrition is coming from milk. Um, And so in formula-fed infants, this is coming from the bottle. So this is not yet when the majority of the patients are are starting to supplement with other foods. So most of the data we have is coming primarily from milk. So it's an interesting study. Uh, They did not actually measure how much each parent was giving the kid um, in each bottle. So sure, you could have a bottle that's eight or 10 ounces uh, in size, but they didn't actually determine whether or not they were filling it half full or larger, but some interesting data coming out from our uh, our own people. Uh, so certainly worth talking about there. Uh, and then lastly, we will turn to the outpatient setting in our outpatient clinic. Uh, and this week we talked about chronic kidney disease. So we, I think, um, during residency become pretty familiarized with chronic kidney disease, given that our chair is um, a Pretty fancy nephrologist himself. But um, in general, things to, I guess, clinical pearls to take away from this week's um, clinic topic is as far as a definition for when to consider someone as having chronic kidney disease, if you have a GFR, a glomerular filtration rate, that is less than 60, that isn't spurious. So if if you have a GFR less than 64 um, longer than three months, that should be considered chronic kidney disease. For our patient population, certainly the things that we look to most frequently would be diabetes and hypertension. And so I think it makes sense that the guidelines say that you should work really hard to control diabetes and hypertension um, and proactively treat these things. Uh, so as not to be playing catch up all the time with the side effects from those diseases but effectively if you um, suspect someone of having chronic kidney disease you should certainly get a creatinine to assess what their uh, clearance is and get an estimated gfr and then you should also screen them to see if they're spilling protein in addition to having an elevated creatinine Um, so in our clinic we we use the microalbumin um, then also at some point in time, those people should probably have some sort of imaging. Uh, Generally, a renal ultrasound is recommended. It's one of the faster, cheaper modalities that doesn't involve the adverse effects of contrast. Um, So that tends to be what we recommend. And as far as workup, certainly if there is any index of suspicion or these patients fall under the screening guidelines for some of the other things um, that put them at risk for chronic kidney disease, you should do those things. So that's things like the hepatitis, so HBV, HCV, uh, HIV, all the, all the things, um, but also ANCA. Dr. Falk would be angry if I didn't also mention ANCA. Um, so screen people appropriately. Uh, and then as far as, uh, other recommendations besides having really great control of their diabetes and their hypertension, um, the DASH diet is something that has been discussed. And this is, it's probably a good option for people who have, um, reasonable kidney function, who have risk factors for chronic kidney disease, like diabetes and hypertension. Um, but once your GFR sort of falls below 60, then you're more at risk for some of the adverse consequences like hyperkalemia, et cetera. Um. Obviously, in patients who have CKD, you want to avoid nephrotoxins and don't give them large contrast loads, et cetera, uh, when it's avoidable. Sometimes it's not, but um, where you can, uh, be judicious with your antibiotic choices and that sort of thing. Um, and then as long as their GFR is greater than 30, it's probably still a good idea to have that person on either an ACE inhibitor or an ARB um, because those are renal protective medicines. Obviously, they lend themselves to certain um, risks, uh, particularly hyperkalemia again. But if your GFR is greater than 30, there still is a renoprotective effect uh, to consider. And again, then once your GFR is falling, you know, less than that uh, 30 mark, you want to consider the other deficiencies that uh, our patients with chronic kidney disease tend to have. So anemia, um, vitamin D deficiency, secondary hyperparathyroidism. Um, And and also remember that uh, patients with chronic kidney disease are independently at increased risk of um, cardiovascular disease, so you should certainly screen them. And any time they come in with a symptom that sounds suspicious, you should take it seriously and check them for cardiovascular disease. Um, But yeah, in general, we see these patients in clinic. Many of them are well tied in. Remember to check labs annually, um, and and that will... um, Hopefully keep them plugged in. Certainly always refer to a nephrologist uh, when you have questions. They're lovely people. They're very smart and happy to help. So that concludes this week's MedPeds and a podcast. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Hope you have a great week. Mm-hmm.